Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 131. We're talking with Greg Lehman this week about all things related to movements of the uh, lower back during exercise, low back pain, low back pain risk reduction, treatment, etc. If you're unfamiliar with who Greg Lehman is, he's going to give himself an introduction here very shortly. Uh, but he's worked with Dr. McGill. He has studied low back movement during exercise uh, extensively and also how that correlates to pain. He's also a chiropractor and a physical therapist. So more on that when we get, begin the podcast here shortly. A few announcements first. This Friday, we've got two new templates dropping. One is for the Army Combat Fitness Test. So if you have that coming up and you're wondering, how should I train? How should I structure my training in order to get ready for that test? Uh, we've got that. Or if you have a friend, family member, somebody else who's getting ready for that test and is not really sure how to train for it, we've got a resource for you. Uh, and we also have our new Strongman template coming out. Alan Thrall and I collaborated on that and uh, pretty excited to bring that to you. We'll have a podcast with Alan on the creation of that uh, specific template coming out next Monday. So you have that to look forward to. Uh, and we have a new newsletter dropping this week. So if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, head over to our website, barbellmedicine.com and sign up for that. It's not a marketing email. It's just new information that we don't publish anywhere else. And if you're interested in that, well, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, all right, let's hop into this week's podcast with Greg Lehman. So it's Greg Lehman. I'm out of Toronto, Canada. I'm a physio and uh, I was a Cairo, but not anymore. Uh, I let that license slide. Wait, did you, you, you went to chiropractic school first? Yeah. And so then I like a master's in spinal biomechanics first uh, on like exercise biomechanics and, and chiropractic manipulation or spine manipulation. And then I went to Cairo college and they were great because I got to do research there, but uh, I didn't buy into the traditional uh, Cairo model. So it didn't really feel like I fit in. There's a lot of good people in it. And then I went, then I went back to school for physio, which was more pragmatic. It just lets me, you know, practice anywhere in the world. It's just a, it's just a license, right? Sure. Sorry. Was there a gap? Like, did you go straight from chiropractic school to oh, yeah, PT oh, yeah. school? So I was in clinical practice for five years straight after graduating Cairo. And then because physio school was like just down the road, literally from where I practiced my little clinic, I could go and keep practicing and seeing patients and go to school. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause they weren't trying to beat physio training in Canada is pretty good. Like they, they don't try to beat you over the head or and give you a massive volume um, of, of material. It's actually, this is what you need to know. It's only two years. It was, it was excellent. Your, your background is super interesting, obviously, in that you're somewhat unique having, I guess, come at this same issue um, from multiple different angles, meaning that you've looked at, be it pain um, and or the, you know, the role of mechanics, but also back pain in particular, which we were hoping to talk to you about. You've, you've been kind of uh, educated or trained on the topic, viewing it through three different lenses, I suppose. Um, which had to have been kind of interesting to see some similarities and differences across them. And, and that's a big part of why we wanted to, you know, chat with you about it and why we've, you know, been interested and I've learned from your stuff in the past as well. I think it's been super helpful uh, for what we do and the message we try to get out there as well. Yeah. My, my training's been interesting, but it's still North America. So it's really dominated by like one or two schools of thoughts. So mm -hmm. like, I still feel like there's other avenues I can explore. Like there, there's so much out there. Pain's so complicated. 
You know, well, you guys know this. The more you're in practice, the more humble you should feel. Yeah, Yeah, that's been my exact proportionality to like confidence in speaking about like just pain in the experience. Because I, you know, you remember you going through like, like I said, neuroanatomy, and you're like, oh, man, if it wasn't for these pain fibers, (laughs) we'd be, we'd be, we'd be good. Just cut these out. Yeah, you just cut them out, and then, uh, and then you're like, ah, there might be some additional nuance, and then you start going down that rabbit hole, and then next thing you know, you're reading a philosoph- uh, philosophy book, and you're yeah. like, what even is life? <laughs> like, what are we? And I say that tongue in cheek, but if you know any of the listeners have listened to uh, the, our pain and rehab teams podcast, you understand like that's that's the natural progression of things. And then I am. Um, oh, sorry, I am curious a bit because you mentioned some of the research you've done in the past. Um, just to further flesh out some of the, I guess, credentials and perhaps biases and other things that you may bring to the table. Could you tell us a bit more about some of the research topics you've looked into? If I recall, you know, you've, you've also worked with or under, uh, you know, Dr. McGill before, who I know is obviously another big name that we hear dropped in this conversation a lot and things like that. Yeah. So I was lucky to do my master's at Waterloo and my supervisor was uh, professor uh, McGill. Um, and I worked with him mainly. So my research was like the biomechanics of manipulation, but then a lot of exercise biomechanics stuff, which was fun, primarily EMG, not, not Stu's model, which is excellent. Um, I'm more of like, all of my research studies are super simple and very like low level stuff. They're not complicated. They're the, they're the research papers that, uh, people have these questions all of the time, but you're never going to get funding for it. You know, so 15 years ago, it was like, should I do my bench press on a stability ball? Should I do calf raises on a BOSU or a wobble board? You know what I mean? Like those things people would say, or like, what's the best way to train the the core? Can I get a core workout by doing deadlifts? Or can I get a core workout by doing heavy squats or jumping or plyometrics? So I love those questions. They're not really hard to answer with some like with EMG but they'll never get funding. So I'm not like a real fantastic biomechanical researcher by any, any stretch, but I have a massive respect for that area. So I read a ton of it and I've always been good at that. That's so that's sort of my, my, my strength is reading from a, a lot of different people and having enough of a knowledge base to understand what's going on without being able to recreate it myself. Awesome. And then your current body of work, like you're calling it movement optimism, which I love. I noticed that was your, your email. Like that's your yeah. business. That's your, what is, how did that come to be? And like, what are you actively doing through that? So that's my shtick. That's like in school, you know, or, or the dominant model in North America is like find some dysfunction or something wrong with someone. And that basically is someone doesn't move the way we think that they should move usually outside neutral. So your, your knee caves in into valgus, your foot pronates, your spine, laterally deviates or flexes a lot aha that's why you have pain and to me that's such a simplistic way of looking at it not only is it consist inconsistent with how pain works i think it's actually inconsistent with how biomechanics works right like i don't think pain science challenges biomechanics i think it's biomechanics that challenges biomechanics there's just another way to view the body and that's the idea of movement optimism like we're built to get in these weird positions. You can tolerate it. That's what we do. We're adapt. We adapt. So that that's the movement optimistic take. It's like a choir of angels to my ears here, you know, just hearing this. It's not that biomechanics doesn't matter. Like 
if I, I do tons of gymnastics and if I'm jumping off of something high, there's a better way to land. Like there's an optimal, so high loads or things like that. Or if you're doing a deadlift, like if you slip and trip, yeah, there's a better way to fall, you know, like, so those high loads, that shit matters, but like low level stuff under control, it, it, ma- it seems to matter less or for performance. Yeah. There's a better way. To- no one's going to do uh, a max deadlift with a Jefferson style lift. Right. It's right. Not on purpose. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's definitely like an an efficiency sort of like bent to like biomechanics from a performance standpoint. Yeah. But like from a, if you're, if you're just thinking like evolutionarily, we're here to, you know, reproduce and, and pass on our genes. And so we ideal, you know, we should be resilient and tolerant of, a, a whole bunch of different positions that just allow us to interact with our environment and, you know, to suggest that individual positions or mechanics are quote unquote bad or harmful or the source, not only as yeah, simplistic, but probably not compatible with like, you know, passing on our genes in a very <laughs> diverse environment that, you know, is ever changing. In addition yeah. to like the fact that we can adapt to well, damn near anything. As far as we figured out, you know, like we don't know the upper limit of like, actually, this is it. You can't above this. You can't really adapt to it, you know, provided that the the load is is meted out appropriately, at least as far as we understand it. This, you know, 100 years from now, this is going to age terribly. They'll be like, actually, we figured it out. Yeah. And that was <laughs> that was all wrong. A, a big a big part of, you know, what we talk about and try to get out there is is. Um, kind of public health advice recommendations, getting more people to be more physically active and in particular to engage with uh, resistance training as a component of their exercise programs, in particular for like healthy aging. In my clinical kind of world, I do inpatient medicine, see tons of frailty, sarcopenia, people who are unable to stand up off of a chair, get out of bed, take care of themselves, and they end up institutionalized in nursing homes, developing pressure ulcers, all these like horrific complications that, that see every day. And so one of the big things that we see is um, whether people are experiencing pain or not, a lot of these conversations around things like, um, you know, uh, putting humans under load in in the course of exercise, um, there is uh, this constant emphasis on, you know, perfect, perfect movement, the neutral that you were talking about, deviations from which are to be avoided almost at all costs. And there is this kind of assigned threat value to that thing that really seems to resonate with people quite a bit. And, you know, we see it as a pretty significant barrier to people buying in and engaging because there's a innate kind of baked in fear of things like that because of things they've been told from people who they view as being in positions of authority. So that's kind of like, you know, we recognize the platform we have for this and we can push back against that. It is quite difficult, um, particularly when there are, you know, folks with substantially larger followings, um, whether in the lay media or in like social media in the fitness sphere who can put out like pithy little lines or, or, or videos with like a red X on it showing that you shouldn't move this particular way. So that's why we, we've been hammering on this stuff for like years now. And it's hard to feel like we're making progress, but at least in our audience, we start to see more uptake and them helping us kind of spread the message. So we're glad to have you around to talk about this stuff um, a little bit more and definitely the movement optimism idea versus what I know you contrast it with the kinesiopathological model, just like wrong movement, Lo- localizing the lesion of, of movement as you know, we're, we're trained in medicine, say you say you have a symptom, we have to like localize the lesion, find out where the problem is. And, and that's a lot more complicated kind of when it comes to pain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So when you talk about uh, uh, spinal flexion in life and, and under load, uh, you know you kind of got into a little bit as far as its relevance or lack thereof or the context in which it may have some relevance for pain. But you did mention that you're very well read on a lot of these topics. Could you give us and the listeners a sense of where you view the current evidence and the limitations of the available evidence on that on that topic? It's a big one, I know. <laughs> Yeah. So, I, so to simplify it, the question would be, you know, is spine flexion an independent risk factor for low back pain, right? So if you took a group of a hundred people and compare them to another group of a hundred and they both lifted the same amount, they had all the same psychosocial stressors. Uh, they trained the same, you know, everything was the same except one group was taught to lift with their hips and they let their spine round, I don't know, 80% of max. Or, or more and the other group uh, lifted with their hips and they tried to maintain their spine in as much neutral as they could or or less lack, less flexed is that group who avoids 100 to or 80 to 100 percent max flexion are they less likely to get injured that that right there that that's the question and I, and, I, and I'm very specific about saying like 80 to 60 percent max flexion because when you look at the spine kinematic research, if, if you're doing a deadlift or if you're lifting from the floor, I would say most people, even if it looks like they're not flexing a lot, they're flexing at least 60 to 80% of their max. That that's, that's the big thing. And, uh, and that's well established when people measure lumbar spine. And so I remember reading some of, so the, 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 the cadaver research from decades ago, specifically Jack Callahan's work, Jack showed this, that you can create a disc herniation with highly repetitive spinal flexion in a cadaver model. And what always threw me for a loop when I went back, what threw me for a loop when I went back and read that was how little spine flexion Jack actually put the motion segment through. I mean, Jack, we talked about this, but he only put it through 35% of the motion segments max. I don't know if, if it was a real max or if it was like super maximal, but it wasn't maximal motion. That's the big thing. It wasn't end range flexion. And I thought, okay, in order for a risk factor to be actionable, yeah, it didn't go all the way. Like that's the thing. And other, other researchers have done the same thing. They did not go end range flexion, right? It was not end range flexion. And they said, aha, if you do lots of end range flexion, this is what people said, you're going to get injured. But all these cadaver studies didn't go to end range. And I'm like, okay, do you, in or, if that's really true, if that amount of flexion, whatever it happened to be, 30 to 80% flexion, if that's really a risk factor for disc injury, are we able to avoid it? Because I, I thought, okay, I found the risk factor for shoulder pain. It's breathing. I'm like, fuck, I have to breathe. I'm doomed, <laughs> right? And that's sort of what I thought about spine flexion. I'm like, if Jack only bent it a little bit, 35 to 60% or 70% or 80%, how often are we actually able to avoid it? And I'm not sure we can. So to me, I'm like, I don't think it matters because I think life is bending your spine more than 70%. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So to, for the, for the listeners at home, you know, this, this whole idea of a neutral zone is that it, it's effectively the range of motion of your spine between points either flexion or extension where there's substantial contribution from like ligament soft tissue bony uh, uh uh components and muscle tension you know on either end 
And as far as what range of flexion to extension that actually like occurs, that's that's a whole nother podcast. We could like really <laughs> go down the biomechanics there. But um, the, what Greg is saying is that to the extent that it's been measured that you can, you know, do repetitive flexion, uh, we're probably, and, and cause a herniation, we're probably in excess of that in not only our activities of daily life, but certainly just exercise, anything that re- requi- requires use of your lower extremities. So like every deadlift that you ever do, whether yeah. your back is flat, rounded, or an overextension, you're out of this quote unquote zone that's been tested in cadavers. And so if you can't avoid that range of motion, is it really an independent risk factor? Because you're doing it all the time anyway. So what you're saying is that, yeah, movement and being alive, cyclical respiration of oxygen and carbon dioxide may be the independent risk factor here for yeah. for this low back pain. So do you think do you think there's a better definition for like this neutral zone if you if you were playing devil's advocate? Yeah, yeah. So what I would say is, and I think and I've talked to Tyson Beach is a great researcher to talk about this, and hopefully Tyson and I are gonna do some more research on this. Uh, I think so the neutral zone is where you start to get resistance to movement, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think in the intact lumbar spine, it's somewhere between 60 and 80%. So, oh, so further out. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it seems. And that's, that's consistent with someone like Patricia Dolan, her research from decades ago. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. We say this, everything we're saying, she said 20 years ago, she's like, you can't squat and not bend your spine, but she thinks you can. And most people would agree with this. If you bend your spine 90% of its max or hundred percent of its max, you could probably take it down to 80 or 70. You, you can do things like that. So what you're saying is uh, that with like our own volitional effort, that is the extent to which we can modify this degree of spinal flexion during movement. Rather, and, and, and to contrast that with maybe the, the lay understanding or the understanding of maybe strength coaches who might feel that if I cue you and smack you and yell at you enough um, when you're setting up your movement that we could get you volitionally down to like 0% spinal flexion, which is completely unlikely to be the case. Is that, is that fair to say? Only if you're standing up, right? <laughs> right. Right. Which but if you do like a good moving. morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you do a good morning, like a really strict good morning, this is Andrew Vygotsky's work. You're going to get 20 degrees of lumbar spine flexion, which is probably around 50, 40 to 50% of max. Uh, Tyson did a study where he had people lift something from the floor and he was able to, with good cueing and he's a, he's a good coach too. He's able to modify flexion seven degrees. So they probably, which is probably about 14 <laughs> to 20% of max. Yeah. And so, so just, just for coaching, because uh, we coach people, we teach people how to, how to lift all the time. And, and there are lots of coaches listening to this who might say, no, I am a coach who, when I cue people, their back <laughs> looks flat. And like, I keep going back to this because I really want the message to sink in. It's like, even when it looks flat, they are flexing the actual intervertebrae, the vertebrae themselves relative to their max, the maximum amount of flexion that they can do. They're flexing a substantial amount when you have somebody yeah. bent over and set up to pick something up off the floor. So I, can I comment on like what they're probably seeing, what I think here? So, of course. When, yeah. So the way people typically measure lumbar flexion is you put a sensor on T12 and one on S1, and you only really get the difference between those. So it's full lumbar flexion. I've fooled around with these sensors. And if you put it on L2 and then S1, you're going to get less total flexion when you try to do it. And what people do when they minimize spine flexion, when it looks like there's less, 
I think most of it, and you guys know this, it's in the thoracic spine. It's an illusion, right? You're, you're really move, moving the upper lumbar spine. That lower lumbar spine, like S1, L5, L4, where, where everyone thinks disc herniations occur, that's still flexing a lot. I don't know if it's flexing maximally, probably not and for a deadlift, but it's still flexing a shit ton. <laughs> I like that. I like the quantification. Yeah. And so you, you've been you've been playing around with these kind of sensors. We've seen some videos of you, you know, applying these sensors to yourself and setting up and squatting and deadlifting at home yourself with you know more more or less kind of volitional spinal yeah. flexion or extension to the extent you can control it. And so, what kind of numbers are you seeing, just so people have a sense of you know this in the real world? So if I do a relaxed deadlift where I feel comfortable, where my back doesn't hurt, uh, and I'm not trying to round my back, it's not a Jefferson but I'm not actively arching the hell out of it. I'll get like 70 to 80% of max flexion. If I do a Jefferson curl, I get 102% max flexion. If I arch the hell out of my spine, I might get, you know, 55 to 60% max flexion. So it's totally, and I've repeated every day for like 10 days. It's totally consistent with the literature. Just you, you're repeating it day after day for not only reliability, but to see if you get better. Oh, that's the problem with this stuff too. Like, even you get differences day to day, just changing the sensor position a little bit, yeah. you'll get different values. Like, yeah, you, yeah. you got to be really strict when you do yeah. this stuff. So you can definitely change it. So that I guess the debate more should be, because uh, this might be worthwhile investigating, is is lifting heavy loads at 100% max flexion more injurious than lifting at 80% max flexion? No one's really tested that. There could be something there at, you know, because you are shifting where the stress goes, and I don't know, there could be something there. I don't. Sure. Know. I'm open to that as devil's devil's advocate. This is assuming that under max loads, you have a choice, well, the, regardless yeah. of like your your movement strategy goals and like you know whatever somebody else is saying to you. Because I think you know when we were on Twitter, so this is how Greg and I met was on 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 the Twitter. We were discussing uh, something related to this topic, and then we talked about golf, and then you know a bromance was born. Uh, <laughs> but the, the idea that like I have a choice at what my back is doing yeah. at a, a true one RM seems unlikely to me. Now I understand that my training leading up to that, you know, could better could either prepare me better or worse. But my take is like if the one RM is going to happen in a particular way that's predictable. And I have an option to either prepare in a series of graded loading like exposures to that. I'd probably pick that rather than doing it substantially different, you know, in a, in, and and then rolling the dice when yeah. it comes time to do a one RM. Um, that would all be that. That would suppose that there's maybe not an inherent risk to deadlifting challenging loads at like 90% of flexion compared to maybe the 75 or 80% that I could achieve with substantial effort and maybe technique revision. Yeah. Um, I don't know that the an that answer to that question exists. And, and, and that also presupposes that there's a substantial amount of back pain coming from disc related or, you know, flexion related, you know, things, which I think is probably misplaced in most cases, but <sighs> Yeah. yeah, you're stressing, like, that's the thing. So even if you go from 90 to 70% max flexion, or even if you could be a neutral, if your disc is herniated and there's damage, you're still stressing it under compression. You, you, you'll, there'll be tension uh, back there. We, we had a study, we we're going to try, we, 
this got approved. It got put on hold. We were doing a study where um, we were going to damage the disc and then put it into neutral and just compress it and in human, in human, dead humans and see what happens to the disc material. Oh, it's cadaver. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, who's going to approve this? Maybe they do it differently up in Canada. Uh, <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> uh, Je- I forget Jeff's last name. Um, but yeah, we got, um, I'm involved in a study where we're going to look at that. Or, or like the, the thing with the, with the heavy load and lifting at 90% and people will say, oh, the cadaver models suggest it's injurious. But the thing is those cadaver models, they do like at minimum 250 loading cycles and up to a thousand. And that's within, you know, two to four hours. Like how many times a week, if you're training heavy, would you ever do a, like a, a weight that's 90% of your max? Like how many total reps for one week? Yeah. Few. Right? Exactly. Few. Yeah. It's <laughs> very few. Yeah. It just makes it no a sense. lifetime to get that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's, it, there's such an inconsistency here. And even mcgill's great paper with the powerlifters with yasik cholowicki i think it was 91 or 89 they this is the famous one where they found they documented a spinal injury do you, do you know have you heard this story like someone was lifting and ow he he said he dropped the weight and said it hurt uh he went on and kept lifting in that study but what they when they went back and looked at the fluoroscopy so they could actually see how the motion segment was moving uh, most people would avoid 100% max flexion. They didn't say by how much, just a few degrees. But this one guy, when he hurt his back, he went over 100% flexion. So there, therefore, the conclusion was, you know, 100% max flexion is bad. But you could just say he just moved in a weird way. He hurt his back, so then something changed, and then his spine went to 100% max flexion. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, there's different ways yeah, to view that, that research. Yeah, like that's how he ended up dealing with that particular experience to continue movement he, he changed his mechanics in a way well just quick just in the short term so like the injury or the the blip yeah. could have occurred and then the spine moved to 100 percent max flexion right. it, would, it wasn't right. you don't right. know the actual timeline there it wasn't he moved to 100 percent max flexion and then the pain occurred we have no idea yeah. there's a, there's other ways to look at those studies and even even if he did move to 100 percent, and that's what caused the injury you could just say, well, he should have been doing that beforehand to prepare for it. To prepare, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Just so there, round your back a little more and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. You did something you weren't used to. No shit, you got injured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of the way we frame it a lot of the time. And that that example of of the different way of looking at the same problem, you know, is super common in people who work with uh, uh, people, you know, clients, patients who are in pain. And, and I use just when I'm teaching on this stuff, I use a super common example that people relate to just imagining that you like rolled your ankle off a curb and then it hurts and you go into the physical therapy clinic and you're limping and they blame your like movement asymmetry because you're limping on one leg and that's why your ankle hurts. And then they like work with you until you stop limping. And then by the time you're done, your pain's gone and they pat themselves on the back that they fixed your movement asymmetry and now your ankle feels better. Whereas obviously the, you know, directionality or the causality and things like that are, are, you know, not being interpreted correctly. It's I'm laughing because I started a keynote with that the other day and I said, (laughs) we, we can learn from limping because somebody limps and that helps them get around and keep walking when they sprain their ankle. But we've done in, in the spine world is someone lifts with less with a neutral spine and they have less pain. So we've said, ah, neutral is better. 
But we yeah. would never look at someone who's limping and say, oh, that helps him walk. When he limps, he has less pain. Therefore, everyone else should be limping. Right. Right. That's the right way to get around because yeah. it's successful. Well, but we've done it in the spine. Yeah. The spine is viewed as being special, unique compared to a lot of other joints and stuff like that. But I swear I didn't steal my example from you. <laughs> no, no, I know. It's called, we're, no, we're both like, we've got nothing original here. That's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Most, most of your work with people, is it in a, like a PT, like a rehabilitative setting? Or are you doing any performance coaching? So I was a strength coach like 20 years ago where I worked with the the, not even that was 10 years ago like the queen's women's hockey team and 20 years ago with the laurier men's basketball team but i haven't done that in a long time oh, but nice. still how i treat is primarily exercise and movement and activity and sport so i'm not a coach anymore right. just the principles sure uh well i mean i just coach i just coach people online so we could argue like am i really a coach or am i just you know <laughs> data analyst <laughs> We don't know. Um, no, the the question I had for you is like, so if you if you had somebody in your clinic in your gym in front of you, and you actively were seeing spinal motion during a squat or deadlift, particularly the lumbar segment moving, and yeah. you're and now you're a woke clinician because you know all of the stuff and you have you know some ideas about what that actually means and relevance to not only efficiency but also maybe injury risk, if if any at all. Do you? fix that do you are you concerned like what's your take on yeah. that so or do they have pain they have no pain they're oh, just okay. you know lifting yeah so i mean i still work with some people in the gym who just want to work out you know sure. uh and if they're just learning i would it's funny i still actually try to teach the neutral-ish motion but that's really just so people train their hips better like i use uh, I would try to say focus on the spine just to get an emphasis on the glutes because they want to train their glutes for hockey or something like that. Sure, sure. Does that make sense? Like I, I think changing how people move, how, how they move is, is great for changing the stress on the body. And sometimes we want to get stress in certain areas. That's where biomechanics matters. So I wouldn't get to, it, it wouldn't be my, if they were just rounding their back doing a deadlift and not really, you know, squatting at all or having a knee flexion moment movement, then yeah, I, I teach the more traditional deadlift just to get the movement in the hips and the knees. Does, does that make sense? Or yeah, I think from, what I'm trying to stress. It sounds like you're coming at it from like a performance minded standpoint where not, 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 not only just the efficiency, but actually like, what is your target? Why are you doing yeah. this exercise in the first place? Like what, that's it, you know, movement patterns, like, what, joint angles, you know, force production, et cetera, are you actually trying to target? And to the extent that the spine movement or any other movement is like detracting from, you know, the target or focus of that exercise, you would fix it to achieve exactly. that goal. Yeah. But not like, oh shit, bro, you're <laughs> you're about to snap your spine. And honestly, well, that's why I don't stand behind them in case I get disc in the face. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Safety first. Safety first. <laughs> I guess it'd be laterally. Yeah. So that's in the case of someone who doesn't have any like acute symptomology, meaning they can squat, they can take a deadlift. It's all pain free. And you're just, you know, really trying to make sure they do the exercise to achieve the outcomes that you're looking for. Now, yeah. if someone did have pain, um, what's your what's your strategy there? Let's say they have low back pain at the bottom of the squat. And you're observing some some visual flexion. Yeah. Uh, while, 
because there's going to, and, and then let's say they also have pain during spinal flexion on the table or doing other things or yeah, crunch. Yeah. Uh, and if I've talked to, if they haven't tried to avoid at all before and they seem like they're an endurance coper, meaning they keep doing the thing over and over, I would totally be like, let's, let's change up your technique or your squat depth or something just for a little bit. It's just a temporary avoidance. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. You're just sensitive to it now. So let's not do it for a few weeks and then we'll slowly start doing it again. And then I would do the same thing the opposite way. If I thought they were too neutral or too arched, I would, I like, I like to flex my back a little when I squat with my baby weights, same. you know, it feels better. <laughs> well, that's the conversation Austin and I, yeah. Well, that's the conversation Austin and I have mostly we'll send each other like deadlift videos, which is mostly it's, it's a low key competition. Cause are like, oh, how much weights on the bar and how many reps are you doing it for? That's just how we keep each other in check. But uh, usually it will be a response like you should you should round your back a little more. You should flex your spine <laughs> a little bit more and make it a little easier off the floor. Come on, man. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you said that you would go essentially both ways. If someone's sensitive to the flexion, then you would try to change that so they could tolerate the movement at versus if somebody is sensitive to it, maybe overextending or being too neutral as you, but, you might. But, but, sorry, I'm all excited now. But then sometimes and this so. Uh, my back gets sometimes sensitive with lots of arching, right? I do like to do mm -hmm. back handsprings and stuff like that with the trampoline. And uh, I'll actually switch my deadlift or a squat and try to arch the hell out of my back to get more com and do it every day as like a habit builder to get comfortable arching more because I have to do it during the back handspring and that's where it's bothering me. So then I'll use it as an exposure. Not classic graded exposure. I'm not afraid of it, but more hab habituation concept or uh, tissue preparation or something. I don't know. I don't know the mechanism. Sorry. Yeah, you're preparing yourself for what you're trying to do, which is like the big overarching idea with respect to like managing injury risk and things like that. It's like, are you preparing to do what you're trying to do? And are you doing the thing that you've prepared for? <laughs> and so commonly we'll hear like lifters and athletes who are like, oh yeah, there's always going to be some, you know, quote unquote form breakdown when you do a one RM or something like that. But every other time besides that, you should always maintain perfect form. And it's like, <laughs> well, doesn't yeah. sound like you're preparing necessarily for, <laughs> you know, so maybe there's a different way to think about it. Yeah. Uh, I have a potentially loaded question. If this is terrible, I'll, I'll edit it out. So don't worry. <laughs> I'm balking at this. Well, so because you did study under McGill and a lot of our listeners are familiar with McGill either from where they came from before or other, you know, social media accounts or, or whatever. What's your take on the McGill, the big three, if you're familiar with it? It's the series of exercises that you yeah. should always do to reduce the risk of low back. I think he, I don't know if he claims low back injury versus low back pain, but uh, yeah, what's your your take on the the big three yeah i mean i was around when that was really getting popular in the 90s and the the, the reasoning was seemed solid at the time it was it was to get the most stress on the tissue with the least compression or shear that was that was the idea uh slow over time you know it changed to build uh stiffness and hence uh stability i i think i still use those exercises but not for that reasoning. And, and that's the same thing with a lot of McGill stuff. I, I can learn, learn a lot from him, but just for a different, uh, I have a different philosophy. So I'll still, I had someone do a bird dog this morning, but I had them do it super arched. <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> because that's what they had trouble doing with their leg way up in the air. So I, I, cause it's the moving preparation idea. So 
I kind of don't, I would, that's, the, that's where I would kind of disagree with the idea that everyone needs to do that. And everyone needs to build, build stiffness in their spine so that it's stable under low load conditions. I think stability, I think the spine must be stable. I just don't think it's something that anyone has to think of. I honestly think it's like breathing. Everyone needs to breathe, but I don't have to check in with my pawns and see how my brainstem's doing. You know, it just happens. And, and that's why we can respect biomechanists. They've, they've added to our understanding of how the spine works. They've described the phenomenon, but I'm not sure it's something that, it, that needs training, if, if that makes sense. Like I, people can just walk. They don't need to post. You're using those exercises just as exercises, not yeah. as some special recipe of things that when combined provide a unique benefit that perhaps couldn't be obtained through like almost any other, you know, many, many other ki kinds of exercises. Yeah, that would be that. The, it, it's like the debate people have with the Copenhagen's and the Nordic hamstring curls. They're, yeah. They have evidence to help prevent injuries, but you might be able to get it through some other mechanism. And so with right. Ben Lee's work and Stu McGill, like they, they show that those isometrics were better than dynamic isotonic movements for creating spine stiffness, like pass, passive stiffness. Um, if that's your goal, maybe in a runner with a hip drop and you want to teach them to avoid it, then they might be helpful. But I don't think you need it for a healthy spine. It just depends what your goal is. Yeah. Yeah. I think the narrative out there, particularly amongst people who are not very familiar with the research and like the limitations of such and the actual uh, uh, specifics of the methodology say that, well, no, you got to do these uh, in order to maintain spine health or to generate spine health. If yeah. you have, you know, obviously using nebulous terms like spine health, uh, you know, in the case, if you have low back pain or if you've ever had low back pain, it's like, mm, I, they're probably just exercises, you know, with the specific adaptations being more or less useful to you, depending on what you're doing and what you want them to do. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's certainly one road to help someone with low back pain and maybe help some people prevent it. It, it would be hard to say that you need a good study to compare it, those three exercises with some other physical activity and that that's never been done. Yeah. We've certainly seen a variety of experiences with those things. We had one client that I, that I recall who was, uh, who came to us saying that he was doing those big three twice a day, every day for a year and had made no improvement in his, in his back pain. So that was a case where, you know, there was a lot of kind of work and conversations and, and, and things like that to do to get them to maybe recognize that this isn't really the cure for back pain. We might need to take a different approach and it might've been just changing the exercises, do something, doing yeah. something differently. Um, which, you know, uh, I, I really like the way you, describe, you know, what you would do with the folks who are in pain in your, in your, uh, clinical, uh, situation, because it really helps to illustrate that this stuff doesn't need to be that complicated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, if, if, if something's hurting, they can change the way they're doing it temporarily desensitize, you know, uh, uh the person to the task and, and kind of work back towards it. Uh, but you know, it doesn't have to be super difficult or super complicated. Yeah, and the big three might help anywhere along those lines. They might help with the desensitizing. It might helps with it might help with building back up. Yeah, and then at some point they probably have to do more. Yes. Uh, any specific back exercises that you think people need to avoid, grit that are just you know <laughs> bad. <laughs> I'm not trying to trap you. I no, promise. I, it's just these are the hard hitting I, questions. I don't, I don't really think that way. Uh, like of of. I mean, nothing should be really avoided, 
but but there's always a better use of your time you know like that like i would much rather people do mcgill's big three than the transverse abdominus multifidus that type of training or anything like that i I think if people want to avoid low back pain maybe they avoid you know high velocity trauma Uh, (laughs) to the extent that you can and then and then prepare for what you're trying to do yeah gradually increase physical activity to prepare for yeah your, i wouldn't like i wouldn't your, your prepare domain. for a powerlifting meet by uh, resting up for two weeks in bed <laughs> i can say that was certain well that's the there's one <laughs> that's actually that's the interesting there's a so there's a uh one study that actually looked at powerlifting related injuries in a, in a competition right and so and so they're just talking about like all these meets and where like people would self-report that they had an injury on the platform, like on competition day. There's one for Olympic weightlifting as well. Um, in any case, what they they described um, in in some of the the discussion was that they weren't aware of like the peaking and taper periods that oh, each individual yeah. athlete had obviously like undergone. And, and very common practices in, in some circles in powerlifting in particular is like you do your last heavy workout like three weeks in advance and then like oh. just kind of ride this wave. Now that's not what we advocate for. Cause we're like, you're just going to detrain. Yeah. And then by the time it's actually comes time to like lift some heavy stuff, you know, where it matters, you might have, you know, put yourself at an elevated risk because you're deconditioned in a way like to the extent, I mean, it's obviously variable on the individual, but uh, I thought that was interesting that they had this data, but it's like, I really wish I'd known, like, is there a difference between, the taper practices and then, you know, subsequent injury rate. Cause I do think about that sometimes when people stop training or stop, you know, lose some sort of fitness, like, does that put them at a higher risk of injury? Yeah. And, that's interesting. Yeah. When your next grant, your next grant, you know, after you study our back flexion, uh, <laughs> movement during max deadlifts, that, that could be your, <laughs> be your next one. Um, for our audience at home, uh, just for like low back pain, uh, injury risk reduction to the extent that that's possible. Do you have like a, a list of like high yield targets that you would, uh, that you would have people focus on for low back, uh, pain prevention. Oh, uh, sleep. <laughs> Although as soon as you tell people to sleep more, you decrease sleep. There's that's the problem. Sure. <laughs> right. Right. So trick people that's into sleep more. Yes. Uh, you, you know, I, I really think there's something to be said for finding exercises or activities you love and focusing on mm-hmm. them. I think there's a subset of people who really thrive by not trying to fix themselves anymore, right? Where you give up on fixing, you actually start fixing yourself. It's a bit ironic. You know, that person who did the, those exercises every twice a day for, you know, a year, I think that gets in the yeah. way. It's like, it's like hearing a dripping in the background. If you focus on that, perseverate, you just, that's all you can hear is dripping. And then you start hearing dripping when there's not dripping. So there's a, so there's something about like just focusing on things that you love and that, that should be your target. And instead of getting, having less pain, it's your goal is lifting more or training four days in a row and those type of ideas. Yeah. That, That, that's just, just like, with pain being so complex and it's a system, it's such a system. It's just be better at everything you can do. It's that sort of that halo type of treatment as well. You know, spending more time, spending more time with your friends after COVID or whatever, just all these things that make you healthier can help with pain. That's, that's the wonderful thing about pain being so complicated. 
that means a lot of things can help you. Yeah, that's that's typically the way we frame that is is folks are often looking for like the one again, the lesion. They're looking for the one source of of the problem and if we can get people on board with the idea that there are multiple things that can impact their pain, then suddenly that becomes so that becomes a good thing because they have lots of things that they can work on and and for people yeah. who are listening who want to know kind of what our recommendations are and and what kind of things you can aim for, aim at for, from a health standpoint, we have an article on our site for like, where should my priorities be for, for health? And we definitely discuss things like sleep and, and nutrition and social connections and all that kind of stuff are all a, a, a big, a big piece of it. And they can all help, help you if you're experiencing pain. And, um, yeah, so I like those answers. <laughs> Uh, speak, speaking of folks in pain, so it, uh, rather than like a risk reduction sort of uh, take, someone has got low back pain, your high yield targets uh, with respect to, to management. So if it's acute, again, like don't overtreat. No, it's normal. Just because you have a massive amount of pain doesn't mean that there's a massive uh, problem. You get strange symptoms like bowel, bladder issues, um, priapism, like any type of uh, plumbing issues, pain down both legs or neurological symptoms, absolutely get that stuff checked out. But most things are non-sinister and and not a problem. And although you feel like hell, you can feel fantastic five days later. So I, I tend not to over-treat at the start. That's always my biggest advice. That, that means uh, stay off the internet, kids. Uh, very cool. All right, Greg, this has been excellent. We could talk for a long time, just about funny, funny stuff and also clinically related stuff. But for people who want to find out more about you, if this happens to be the first time, they've been living under a stupid rock and they don't know who you are, where can people find uh, more about you? Uh, my website's greglayman.ca and then I'm on Twitter uh, at that same handle. Oh, and on Instagram. But that's that's mainly just me doing clips. <laughs> It's Which is, yeah, is entertaining. Hey, neither, neither of us can do that. So <laughs> no, no, we just do like deadlifts and squat and bench press. That's our that's our just, Instagram feed. Just so. go on a trampoline; it helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and you have a podcast, yes? Yeah, I don't know how that happened. I was guest hosting, and now I'm like a permanent guest host. No, he's got a podcast, NAF Physio Podcast. And again, he's on Twitter, all the social medias. We'll link all that stuff in the description below. Uh, Greg, any parting shots for the barbell medicine crowd? They're, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are going to potentially hear this uh, at some point. So, you know, this is this is your time to shine. <laughs> uh, I would just say to keep listening to you guys. Oh, oh man. We didn't even pay him to say We didn't that. even pay him for that. I got to set a, what's your Venmo? Let me tip this guy. <laughs> Very cool. All right, that's a wrap on this week's podcast, episode 131 with Greg Lehman. I've linked all of his social media details and contact stuff in the description below. So if you're interested in following him or learning more about what he does, check out those links. Uh, wherever you're getting this podcast from, if you can leave us a five-star rating and review, really helps drive traffic to our podcast, which is helpful because apparently there are podcast rankings. Who knew? And now that I know that we're being ranked, well, I want to move up the rankings. So uh, if you could do that, share it with your friends. Uh, if they would be interested in this information, share it on Facebook. You guys can get in Facebook arguments. And, uh, you know, that's probably a good use of your time. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so anyway, we appreciate you listening. Check us out next Monday. Uh, we've got a, a special edition podcast with Alan Thrall. And uh, see you then. Have a great week. Have a great week.